0: I'll be heading back to the state fair, and for one reason, to summarize it in two words, deep fried. <laughs> Absolutely. Have you ever eaten a deep fried snicker bar? Huh? That's a death on a stick right there. I'm willing to pay $47.50 for those every time I go. What they do is they take a snicker bar, stick a put a stick in it so it kind of looks like a corn dog and they, they, they roll it. I watched them do it. it it's fascinating. Uh, they, they roll it in what looks like pancake batter then they transfer it to a vat of, of boiling oil and they dip it and it, and it comes out fluffy and, and, and crispy and it melts the snicker bar inside. And then while it's still a little moist from the fat, they roll it in powdered sugar and they hand it to you. You, you can just hear your left aorta slamming shut. It's worth it. It's worth every bit of it. You know, a couple of years ago, I tried a deep-fried Twinkie, but it was just too too sweet. I've got my standards. I want you to understand that. Last year, I tried deep-fried Oreos, but didn't really like them. This year, it's back to the gold standard, the tried and true deep-fried Snicker bar. Can you believe they're selling stuff like that? You're thinking, Stephen, I can't believe you're eating stuff like that. Well... At the time when our culture is so conscious, you know, you hear about it all the time with bad cholesterol and and trans fat, whatever that is. I actually looked that up because I hear a lot about it, didn't know what it was. One New York Times article that I came across explained that trans fat is created by pumping hydrogen into oil at high temperatures. It creates not only an inexpensive fat product for cooking, but prolongs shelf life in products. As well as creates, and I quote, food that is flavorful and crisp. Which is why you want it, right? As opposed to flavorless and soggy. Well, listen to this. Just a few months ago, the New York Times article went on to say, i would heard about this, and they documented it just this past June. The state of California enacted a ban on all trans fat cooking in restaurants. They're the first state to do it. Of course, California did this. But listen to this. Restaurants must comply by the year 2010 or be closed. One can only wonder how long it will take before this conspiracy affects the North Carolina State Fair. (laughs) This may be my last chance to have a flavorful, crisp Snicker bar. By the way, I happen to admire those of you that are going to go to the fair and you're going to walk right by that deep-fried booth. You're going to wave at me. You might even shake my hand. I admire you. I'm proud of you. I I feel sorry for you, but I'm proud of you. (laughs) If you avoid it and go on your way to the corn on the cob or or something good like that. You know, if junk food stayed at the state fair, I would be better off. In fact, most of it does. It's a good thing I can't have one of those every other Friday night or Sunday afternoon. The trouble is, junk food isn't just a physical problem, it's a spiritual problem, too. It's showing up in our generation more and more in the form of curriculum, books at the Christian bookstore, and uh, worse yet, sermons. Walter Kaiser, an educator, pointed out the anemic state of affairs in the American church today. And he, By the way, he placed the responsibility where it ought to be, squarely on the shoulders of pastors and teachers who are preaching and teaching everything but the word and the words of God. He writes, and I quote him, It's no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health, She has been languishing because she is being fed junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition have afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is never damaged by using food that is harmful to their physical bodies. At the same time, a spiritual famine has resulted from the absence of any genuine publication of the word of God. How true. We're serving up effectively deep fried Snickers in the form of Sunday school lessons, Bible study materials and and sermons with little nutrition if any, artificially sweet, all kinds of Things that are they're bad for you, no textual substance, no, no theological fiber. There's certainly no meat inside. We pander after the creative, uh, the superficial. We skip here and there looking for the quick answer and, and the quick fix. Now the solution is not necessarily banning any and all things that are superficial or, or perhaps topically driven. The solution is a change diet, It is a return to teaching, not just the word of God, but the words of God. While the average pastor today, and I can tell you I get the mail every day in my mailbox here at the church. Every Sunday school teacher, every Bible study leader is, is barraged with the latest fad. The latest thing the most titillating topic uh, or interpretation, uh, the latest interest about life in general, we we must resist in general that for the sake of, of the health of the church at large. It bears repeating that the average ministry today in our culture is expounding on life and illustrating with Scripture. We must return to expounding on Scripture and illustrating with life. Now, frankly, by the time the average curriculum, the average sermon, the average study reaches Jonah chapter 3, we're under the impression that all the good stuff is over. Now, we might have some faint awareness that, yeah, those Ninevites, I think, repented and, and that was a good thing and Jonah wasn't very happy about it, but it's time to move on. You know, we're past the fish and And all of that, vomiting them up on dry land, that about wraps up the series. It's time to move on to another Bible story, aren't we? However, I have discovered Jonah chapter 3 is weighted for the benefit of the church. In fact, I'm going to divide it into two studies. Uh, It it has convicted me, and it should challenge every one of us who hold positions. and, And I know most of you are serving in some way. Many of you are teaching and leading in studies. It should be deeply encouraging as well as challenging to to all of us, no matter what you do, no matter what age you teach, no matter how large the size, if it's in your living room or in a class. In Jonah chapter 3, I believe it may very well hold the key to a spiritual awakening, to a return to spiritual health and vitality. Not only individually, but but as a ministry. And for those of you that wear the mantle of teacher or mentor or discipler or preacher, it could begin in the pulpit of our land, this chapter, and it would spread, impacting the church greatly. In fact, I believe... That we are in desperate need for preachers and teachers to follow the example of Jonah in chapter 3. And we are in desperate need of people who will respond like Ninevites. You may remember that Jonah had been told to go to the Ninevites. He responded, you remember, by going down to Joppa and setting sail. There on the coast of the Mediterranean, he booked passage on a boat headed for Tarshish Tarshish. On the coast of Spain. It was in the opposite direction of where God had told him to go. Why? Well, for one, we, we learned that briefly hinted it, he was a patriotic Jew. He had come to believe, as most of his countrymen, that God belonged to them. That salvation belonged to the Jew. It would be inside the fish where he would rediscover and we would hear him say, salvation belongs to. To the Lord. It is His to give to whomever He will. Furthermore, I think that, that Jonah was probably resentful, if not afraid, of the renowned Ninevite cruelty to their captives. They were known for skinning their captives alive, gouging out their eyes, or humiliating them by putting hooks in their noses and leading them like cattle before having them killed. I was recently at the British Museum in London and saw firsthand the clay designs that once plastered the walls of the king's palace in Nineveh. The drawings of of prisoners being dismembered and pictures or drawings of skulls piled high against city walls. Frankly... I believe that that Jonah did not want God to show mercy to this unmerciful people. He didn't want them to receive anything from God but but punishment and and death. And maybe a slow death at that. And and we'll actually have to hear him admit to that later on. And so he runs. God then sent a fish after him and brought him back. Chapter 2 verse 10 tells us he was spit out on dry land. Now if I were Jonah, I would expect at this point to retire somewhere in Samaria, or maybe back in my hometown of Gath Hefer, to settle down, finished. If I were God, I would have been looking for another prophet. And I would have been wrong on both counts. Jonah is prepared now to accept this mission from from God to go to the Capital city of the Assyrian kingdom, this impressive city of Nineveh, and God is prepared to reenlist him. In fact, the next words are very moving to me, and I'm sure they will be to you. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, now just pause for a moment, let that sink in. You ought to underline that. The second time. Isn't that a great phrase? What grace and forgiveness is bound up in those three English words? The second time. You don't re-enlist someone like Jonah. You go back to the drawing board, right? You send out for resumes. You start over. Peter had his chance in the courtyard. John Mark had his opportunity to stand in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thomas missed his chance by skipping out on the upper room. They all had, however, what? Second chances. James Montgomery Boyce wrote in his commentary on Jonah at this point, If we were to say, go home, Jonah. I'm glad you repented of your disobedience, but you are no longer useful to me. We would be just and reasonable to do so. But that isn't what happened. Does God always do this? Does God stoop to use those who have rejected his commission? Who've turned a deaf ear to his word? Pursued a course of determined disobedience? Yes, he does. If he did not, none of us could serve him. None of us could serve him if he didn't. This is not defending disobedience. So relax. This is this is defending the grace of a very gracious God. Not not just in Jonah's life, but in your life and mine. He is the God of second chances and behind, of uh, beyond that. In fact, another author. Reminded me when he wrote this. Honest reflection compels the believer to speak of him as the God of the 999th chance. How many times have we been forgiven? And yet another opportunity given to us to do something for Christ. I love that phrase. The word of God came to Jonah. The second time. Can you imagine the thrill of Jonah as he heard the word of the Lord come to him again? He was a prophet. He had spoken on behalf of God many times. One of his prophecies became famous, as you know, in his earlier ministry. It came true. More than likely, he expected this would be the last time he would ever hear the word of the Lord come to him. But it came again. George Morrison, the well-known Scottish pastor and writer from several generations ago, put it this way. Listen carefully to this. The victorious Christian life is really nothing more than a series of new beginnings. Verse 2. Here's the word of the Lord. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, it's interesting to me that that this is the same commission Jonah first received back in chapter 1. However, it's, it's tweaked a bit. Uh, the first time, Jonah was reminded of how wicked the Ninevites were, and he knew that. This time, in the second commission, Jonah is not reminded of how wicked the Ninevites are. In fact, replacing that phrase is this phrase where he's challenged with this sacred task. Deliver to them my word. He's given a second chance, and now he's given this sacred charge. And it's really nothing less than preach the word. That's it. Preach the word. It's the same charge given by Paul to Timothy and to every pastor and Bible teacher since. Timothy, preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And for those of you who teach, those of you who disciple and mentor, there's always a pull to to, to, for some reason, to, to, to pull you away from the text. Uh, perhaps it's something more interesting in the minds of those who are in your little class or Bible study. Maybe it's something more appealing. Maybe it's something uh, more positive. Maybe it's something more, more promising at times. Nonetheless, ladies and gentlemen, the reformation of souls and the awakening of hearts comes by means of the power of the gospel of Christ. Romans chapter 1 which comes through the word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than their most distinguished weapon of war at that time. A sword sharpened on both sides. Take that. Deliver that. Preach that. I think there's something else here that God is warning Jonah not to do. He's just survived Three days in the belly of a great fish. He has just ridden back by God's command in the belly of that fish all the way back to where the fish spit him out safely on the dry land. Now, now think about it. Who's got that kind of testimony? I mean, that that you ever been to a testimony meeting where the next person tries to top the other person and sin gets worse and worse and worse? You know, Nobody can top this one. Jonah will rule in the testimony meeting. He, he'll be given the front chair, he'll be given the mic, and he'll never give it up. You know, I, I, I grew up in a Christian home, was saved at an early age, and after some trouble, dedicated a that, that doesn't hold a candle to my miracle ride in the belly of a fish. I, I thought of how he could, he could publicize it, you know, how I survived three days underwater. I mean, that's going to rule Wednesday night's prayer meeting life inside a whale, and why I'll never eat fish again. That's interesting. My testimony is not interesting. That's interesting. You know, I think there was a a challenge here. Jonah, look, what happened to you is amazing. Nobody has that testimony. It would be so easy for you to go make a ministry out of your fish story. How I survived the whale. What it felt like? what? Let me answer a hundred questions. No, Jonah. None of that. You and this is what God emphasizes. you go and you deliver to them my word, my proclamation. You stay focused on, on that. Don't tell your fish story. Don't dramatize your call back into ministry. Don't focus anybody's attention on you. Jonah, go to that city and deliver my word. That's your sacred charge. Go to this great city. You know, it's interesting that four times that that expression shows up, this great city. It was great in its history, no doubt. It was founded by Nimrod, the, the great grandson of Noah. Noah. It was great in size. The circumference of the city and its suburbs was about 60 miles. About 600,000 people lived there. Its impressive walls and gates. It was great in, in sin. It was idolatrous. It was immoral. It was brutal. Nineveh was located on the eastern banks of the Tigris River near the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. Some of its walls have even been reconstructed on their original site. Jonah would enter the city through a massive gate of this great city, towers stretching into the sky. Some of the gates have even been reconstructed using original stones. And I I can imagine as he walked through Assyrian soldiers would have been looking down at this foreigner who dared to enter. Jonah would no doubt have visited with the king himself. In fact, the text implies that the king repented upon hearing the message. More than likely, he was given a personal audience with the prophet in his own palace. Jonah would have seen the palace as it was excavated centuries later, brilliantly colored. With battle scenes. It's interesting that for years skeptics said that one of the reasons the Bible was unreliable is it talked about this great city of Nineveh, and we have no evidence that Nineveh ever existed until the mid 1800s when the city was discovered. And this gentleman by the name of Laird discovered the hill under which the buried ruins of Nineveh lay. In fact, the dry sand that covered the city. Preserved it incredibly so. Jonah would have entered the city and, and entered the palace. And he would have stood near two huge oxen or bulls with wings. With heads of uh, like men and with long beards. They were, they were placed in palaces and in temples in Nineveh to protect the people from evil spirits. A pair of these winged gods were excavated by Laird and now stand in the British Museum. In fact, I had the opportunity to have a picture taken standing in between two of these bull gods. Something that's 3,000 years old. We're looking at something that that, that dates back to the palace of the, uh, of the king of Nineveh. They believe that that those winged gods served as guardians. An impressive idol, no doubt. Well, the king had two of them in his palace. I can only imagine that uh, Jonah could have easily had the opportunity standing in the palace to point at those massive idols and say, King, I've got news for you. They will not protect you from the spiritual world, which is what they believe." You are in deep trouble. In fact, you've got 40 days and you're dead. And my God says it will happen. Now, did the king listen at this point? Frankly, I believe the king had already been prepared by God to listen, as well as the people. In fact, Jonah might have had nothing less than a royal reception. These events... As quickly as they appear, implied that he was given assistance in order to travel from place to place through such a large city and suburbs, hitting just the key points so he could deliver his message, probably to audiences that were gathered on his behalf. But I have little doubt that the story of a man riding in the belly of a fish, delivered to dry ground by a great fish that had already reached the ears of the king, And the people for good reason. It meant something to them. See, one of the chief gods of the Ninevites just so happened to be a fish god. His name was Dagon. Dag is simply, or Dag is the word for fish. The Ninevites worshipped Dagon, the fish god. They believed that he ruled the Mediterranean. That was his turf. He was in control of the Mediterranean and beyond. Actually, he was half man from the waist up and, and half fish from the waist down. Carvings and paintings of Dagon have been discovered by archaeologists in and around the city of Nineveh. You add to the fact that a Phoenician inscription dated about 200 years after Jonah lived informs us that one of the chief cities belonging to Dagon, happened to be Joppa. The very city where Jonah fled and more than likely the place where he was brought back by the fish. You put these pieces together and discover that the Ninevites were probably ready to listen. It's interesting that God would use Jonah's disobedience and intentionally Choose his transportation method back to Joppa with exactly the Ninevites' superstition and idolatry in mind. The Ninevites are prepared to listen to a prophet who rode inside a great fish commanded by his God. Evidently a God that ruled as a greater God, the Mediterranean Sea. A God who evidently is more powerful than our God, Dagon. So you see how the stage is uniquely set for the greatest national conversion ever recorded in the history of our planet. Notice verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. The word overthrow means literally turned upside down. The tense of the verb indicates total, thoroughness, a complete destruction, a complete overturning of the city's foundations, walls, and gates. In fact, it's the same verb that appears in the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jonah delivers his message. Frankly, from a human perspective, And rationale, this enterprise seems absolutely ridiculous. How can one man, claiming to be God's prophet, confront thousands of people with an offensive message that God is going to turn Nineveh upside down and not expect to be impaled on a stake before sundown? He had no assurance, if you study the text, that he wouldn't. But men and women, to this day, centuries later, it is still God's method of bringing about Reformation and revival and an awakening in any land. A teacher, a Bible study leader, a discipler, a mentor, a pastor who simply delivers the words of God. Reformation comes when a people of God Submit to the will of God and communicate to their world the word of God, then God will do what only God can do, and that's change lives. Is it really surprising to read the very next phrase, verse 5? We'll just read it and stop. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Imagine that. They believed in God. By the way, you notice it doesn't say they believed in Jonah. They may not have been all that swept away by Jonah. They were swept away by the warning of Jonah's God. They were swept into the mercy of Jonah's God. And that's what matters. Martin Luther, the reformer, was once asked about his incredible contribution to the Reformation where the church itself and so many millions of lives were Changed. And he responded, I quote him, I simply taught the Word of God, and the Word of God did everything else. Well, the beginning of this great awakening is now underway. A man who was given a second chance is fulfilling his sacred charge, and the Word of God is going to begin to work. And it is that Word which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And it is that word which so nourishes your heart and mine, doesn't it? And I remember as a, I think I was probably a senior in high school. And I'd grown up in a, in a fairly decent non-denominational church, very formal, uh, robes and the whole thing. And I respected the pastor don't remember anything like Bible exposition. Didn't understand what that meant. Ended up as uh, later in high school going to a Baptist church, and uh, I remember the twenty-minute invitations. I do not remember any Bible teaching at all. But I remember being invited. Somebody told me that J. Vernon McGee was preaching in a church in Virginia Beach, and I decided to go. I think I was a senior. I'd committed my life to the Lord that summer before. And I went. He preached every night at that church. He opened the Bible, and all he did was read it and explain it. It dramatically impacted my life. I didn't walk away in awe of J. Vernon McGee, I walked away in awe of God. I I walked away in awe of this book, his word more deeply open to it than ever before. So for you, whoever you are, in whatever way you teach or communicate the truth of God, just teach, preach, communicate the Word of God and know that the Word of God will do everything else. Father, thank you for indeed your Word. For the testimony of this one who was given a second chance, we're grateful you have given us many, many, many chances. I know I'm here today delivering your word because you've given me many chances. I pray, Father, that we will leave here every time we gather, impressed with you, in awe of your grace and forgiveness. I pray that it will mark us even in this study that you have given us by your grace fresh chances today and there will be fresh chances tomorrow. Help us to take advantage of them for your glory. So wonderful to gather, Father, as an assembly and worship you and sing and study. No greater delight to me. Now help us to take it into the the field tomorrow. Where we work and live. Conscious of your grace. Conscious of your favor on us. Not because of our worth, but because of your Son, who is our Savior. Help us to hold high the word of God. To communicate your word to our world as we submit to your will and then be patient to wait to let the word have its work as you see fit in Jesus name we pray Amen Amen.